0: If you're an adult amateur horse lover who wonders what it takes to make magic with horses, you're in the right place. I'm Paige Lockton, and this is the Magic of Horsecraft. Join me for conversations with wizards in the world of horsecraft about the ingredients needed to build connection with horses and courage in life. Turns out these things are connected. How do I know? (laughs) Like most things, I learned the hard way. I lost the magic I once had with horses. In regaining it, I discovered that the elements of connection are learnable. Whether you ride your horses forwards, backwards, or sideways, stick around for stories that show us how we are the same and that anything is possible. Take a chance. Have you ever had one of those moments that just stopped you in your tracks? An experience that changed the trajectory of your life? I had one of those in June of 2019 At an equine facilitated wellness workshop with Carmen Theobald. It made such an impression that coming home from it, I pulled my car over on the side of the road, went live on Facebook, and vowed to do whatever it took to get access to more of the magic that Carmen had facilitated that day. I showed up on that day in June for Carmen's workshop wearing a veritable suit of armor and a mask. I was in the midst of separation, on the heels of bankruptcy, and carrying the uncertainty of a lump growing in my left breast. As I stepped into the paddock for an exercise with one of Carmen's horses, with the intention of having an interaction that embodied mutual respect, I drew myself up tall, walked with what looked like confidence, and faced the dark horse across from me. What happened next revealed what was really going on inside of me. That little black horse walked up to me, and as he passed, he crowded into my space, wrapped around behind me and took a little nip at the back of my leg leaving me shocked laughing at the disrespect he'd shown me and embarrassed. Carmen's skillful facilitation, the vulnerability training she'd started the day with, and the safety of the small group setting made the bitter pill I had to swallow easier. Turns out he could see through my mask and his behavior reflected my lack of respect for myself. The release I had after letting down my mask and owning my truth led to a sense of safety, connection, and groundedness I couldn't remember feeling in years. It was this moment, this feeling that led to training with Linda Kohanoff and Dr. Rebecca Bailey with Carmen in Montana, where I had another aha moment when learning the science of self-regulation and connection convinced me that feel was as learnable as resilience. Listen in as I talk to Carmen about that moment, about masking, about vulnerability, and what it takes to connect with horses, humans, and any sentient being. Do you remember that day coming back from the one that you hosted, Carmen, at the farm in Aurelia, mm-hmm. where a horse showed me exactly? how little he respected me do you remember
1: that yeah I really do Um, but I you know even as we're reflecting on it I want to share that the horse and that scenario and what I find with the horses in general the language we use to describe events is really reflective of of a lot that we might not be conscious of all the time so even by saying that the horse showed you he didn't respect you I think he was really reflecting back to you how much you didn't respect yourself and so when I saw you on that day and you attended that workshop I first of all I think you're a pretty stupendous human um, and an impressive person for all your history and in many things about you you're incredibly intelligent and that comes across Um, every moment that I've ever spent with you and what is that beneath that sometimes and can be under the surface for many people whether we appear extremely successful or confident or capable not just you any person there's a lot that we're kind of masking about what's really going on and the horses respond to what's underneath the mask the horses are responding to what's truly going on in the depth of our being. And so although you showed up that day with your wealth of horse experience, with your stature and posture in a way that was conveying a sense of confidence, underneath that was a, a really um, a lack thereof. And I say that, of course, as you know, with no disrespect or judgment, mm-hmm. but just that's where that's you true. were at that day. And so the horse that particular day felt you, saw you, experienced the true you, not the mask that you were showing to the world, and reflected that back to you in that situation.
0: Yeah, that was um, beautiful. Now, I have to say that it was very hard to own, and I wouldn't have been able to own it as easily if you hadn't put us through some vulnerability training. And that's like a superpower. You told us that it would get easier. You told us that vulnerability was the way to go. Like, do it, do it, big thumbs up. And it's like, okay. (laughs) And I was honest in the reflection after the horse experience. And it was hard. And I just keep doing it. And it just keeps getting easier, just an FYI for people. Vulnerability gets easier, and I learned that from
1: Carmen Theobald. Although she's not the only one in the world, no, there's so um, much out there right now. And I'm so grateful to be in a time where there's amazing teachers for that. One of the first that comes to mind is Brene Brown. Um, she's just got so much incredible research and stuff out there to support how vulnerability is really the birthplace of all the things that we want the most: of joy, of love, of connection, of belonging. But we have to start from this place of being really real. And so often it doesn't feel safe to be. So it's not a judgment around those of us who are struggling with that. That's okay. There's understandable reasons for it. And it's something that we can build like a muscle. So I often make this connection where um, we do this vulnerability strength training that it's not overdoing it. We Just like we don't want to go to the gym and work out so hard that our muscles are actually injured. And at the same time, we want to make sure that our workouts cause us a little bit of discomfort, because if we don't, we're just going to stay the same strength forever. And that's not actually building our strength. So strengthening vulnerability muscles, just like strengthening our muscles at the gym is not always comfortable, but we can still do it in safe, healthy, balanced ways. And it pays off so much in every other department of our life, including our in our relationships with ourselves.
0: Yeah. So in my case, I arrived um, at your clinic with just a train wreck behind me of two bankruptcies and property losses. Um, And I was in the middle of a separation and just everything I had no income. I had nothing and I had a very big mask on and It was the first time I was introduced to the concept that the horses can indeed tell when you're wearing a mask. (laughs) No, don't need to question that anymore. Just accept they can and that it's so important to them. And it sends a danger signal because you would be a bad leader if you're deceptive or if you don't know what's going on, if you're not mindfully here and you don't know what's going on, I'm not following you anywhere. And the horses don't want to be anywhere near someone who has any incongruence and so forcing being forced in a small setting like that to let the mask go I remember just melting into that chair <laughs> and I guess I think that's maybe the first time I felt grounded oh uh, <laughs> just about needed a nap like this huge release of not um, you know needing to put something false on to have the people around me respect me um, and what you, you enabled and the experience that I had and the shift that I had was so strong and so important. And I had no idea how you did it. I just became fascinated and decided to follow you everywhere. (laughs) um, I'm really glad I followed you to Montana. That was great.
1: (laughs) Yeah, same. Um, If I could just circle back for a second, because you shared something really important that Um, I just want to elaborate on a little bit for those listening, how horses really don't want to be near us, especially when they have freedom of choice in that matter, because the work we do in the workshops is 99% of the time with horses at Liberty. So they have the freedom of choice of whether to be near us or not, of how they're responding. Um, So we get a lot more of an honest mirror response from them that way, which is really good and really hard at the same time. Um, But I think that's where the real magic lies if we wanna talk about magic a little bit, right? Um, But when we're we're wearing our masks, when we're not congruent, which means when our insides are not matching our outsides, not only do the horses pick up on all these things, but it also makes our own blood pressure rise when we are suppressing emotion that doesn't mean that we need to like overshare all the time because that's not appropriate either but when we are actively pretending something is not how it is within us and trying to show a different way to the world or even to us to ourselves not even to others what that's doing to our body and our nervous system it's actually making it work harder because it takes extra effort and energy to suppress and so that is right away one of the measurable physiological cues that horses are responding to, to let them know that it's not as safe an environment and they can't put quite as much trust in us because we're working so hard when there's not actually an external threat. And so that's a cue for them to not trust our discernment or decision-making ability quite as much. And the same is true for humans, right? When we are with others who are um, pushing or repressing that, that kind of um, extra energy, that raised blood pressure, raised heartbeat, all that stuff that's happening as we are incongruent, that's contagious to other people too. So if you have a room full of people and there's a couple who are incongruent or even one, you're going to see a measurable effect in the other people in the room, whether we're conscious of it or not. So I think our bodies Mm -hmm. are always responding to other people's and other beings bodies because we are social creatures we have these physiological connections whether we're conscious of it or not so that's one element where it's so clear measurable and obvious that horses are picking up on all these subtleties and things and the other thing is you know in all my experience working with horses I've worked with thousands of horses over the last 13 or so years as a farrier and in this work as well they just respond to what is the truest version of me always and sometimes that's really hard (laughs) sometimes they are you know i i want so badly to like blame my hard day on them but it's actually never their fault sometimes it's not my fault either because i'm not the only one in the barn but um i always have a part to play and the more that i learn about myself the more honest i can be with myself about what's really going on the more I can peel back those layers of my own masks and have my own vulnerability strength training working hard for me, the more evident it is. And I can't deny it that the horses are always responding um, in ways that make sense to what's going on for me. That doesn't mean that every horse is going to be perfectly behaved because that's a whole other story about training and environment and this and that. But I always have a part to play. And the horses has shown me that every day when I show up to work.
0: Wait, you're an expert. You have to work at this too. <laughs> we get to stop working at it at some
1: stage. <laughs> and get the experts. Oh, you know, we've chatted a little bit about this, and I, I appreciate and I'm flattered by the term, and I take it as a compliment in that I've, I've gained a lot of experience, and I don't ever consider myself an expert because um, it's a lifelong learning journey. I think everyone is on a lifelong learning journey. And when we stop thinking we are, if we've hit expert level and we're good to go, that's when we're really going to crash and burn. Yes. Thank you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And she said, uh, what happened to you? It's Like, well, it's a long story. And So it was being introduced to what happens when you wear a mask or you can't be mindfully present or you can't regulate your um, nervous system. So my nervous system was stuck in a state that I like to call five alarm fire bell mode Mm -hmm. uh, in the red. And um, as long as I interacted with anyone, they felt that. And if horses were left in freedom, they ran the other way. And I was outed. I lost the magic. And that was devastating, awful. Everybody witnessed it. I was outed and they're like, what? She's supposed to be an Olympic rider. (laughs) Uh, And then, but uh, thank God, at the same time, I learned that essentially you can hack into your own nervous system and own that puppy, (laughs) make (laughs) it yours (laughs) and move it from five alarm fire bell to in the blue zone to uh, in that green zone. The green zone, you need to be in to be a farrier, (laughs) to go on stage, to ride down center line, dressage. And if you can't get there, the job you're trying to do is you're never going to be a magician at it. You're always going to be a muggle in that job, grasping at it. And so I understood also, um, the ways I had been doing it by accident through some of the exercises they taught, <gasps> so I went through my memories and I was like, that's why speed Axle would go in a trance for me it was because I was singing and humming to her constantly I had all these aha moments. And it became my mission just to spill the magic as I understand it to the world. Cause to me, it means that the magic's learnable mm. it means you can teach horsemanship. And you can teach feel to those passionate adult amateurs who are pouring their hearts out. They're emptying themselves to to make this connection and the pros are doing backflips. I mean, my my friends are the best pros in the world, right? Um, And sometimes it doesn't matter what they do. There's some magic they can't create. And I don't wanna teach anybody how to ride anymore. I don't even care because anybody can teach you how to ride if you know this. But if you don't know this, none of my friends are going to be able to teach you how to ride a horse good. Not like they can, right? So I wonder if, um, if I can hand the reins over on a couple of a couple of things. If I can ask you about the magic and what you think the ingredients are.
1: Yeah, and I appreciate what you're sharing there. You know that this this kind of foundation of understanding all these pieces we've just been chatting about and embodying them is the key to whatever we want to be doing in our relationships, whether that's you know, with our human partner, our horse partner, whatever we might be doing with them, whether that's business or riding or liberty work, or I don't think it matters the discipline. I don't think it matters you know, any of those things. The foundation is how healthy, and safe is our relationship. And how are we creating that connected, safe place within ourselves and with others? So talking about our nervous system, I love one of the uh, ways that Deb Dana talks about it. She's, um, she's written some books. She's got some great programs out there. And she talks a lot about um, befriending our nervous system and healing our nervous system. And that's important in my response because I think anything we're doing needs to be coming from a trauma informed approach. Mm-hmm. And when we learn how much trauma lives in the body, and that's connected to our nervous system and how our nervous system functions. So that's the thing that puts us into fight, flight, freeze mode, fawn, you know, the people pleasing, whatever that response is for us, where we're seeking a sense of safety going into certain patterned behaviors, trying to find that sense of safety. We're in that, maybe it's not five alarm fire, but it could be a one alarm, two alarm, whatever kind of fire mode we go into. And so often it's unconscious. So often it's just the way that we're doing things and the way that we're used to doing things. And maybe we can still get some results and actually create a lot of success with that, but not always from a really good place. And we're going to be limited and come up against some really hard walls when we're operating from that place. And we crash, right? That's a lot on our body. That's a lot of nervous system to be constantly functioning in this revved up place. So learning how to kind of bring that down, to be able to intentionally allow our body to create a sense of calm, Safety, connection, whether that's through self regulation or co regulation, what that means is whether we're doing the tools to support ourselves without anybody knowing or anybody around us, whether that means having others in our world, in our space who are able to help us get there. Because remember, all these things are contagious. Um, So, no matter how we're getting there, integrating more and more of what helps bring that sense of calm, safety, trust, connection into our being and moving from that place. Whenever we start to interact or whether that's speaking or writing or talking on a podcast or whatever it is, um, you know, just even being near another person, we are always influencing and impacting one another. And when we start from that place, that's much calmer and we're, Um, aligned with who we truly are, but also from this place of common safety. Now Mm -hmm. doors open. Now things are possible that we didn't even think were possible because we're coming from this place of um, a totally different functioning in our body. And it opens up the way that we can see the world. It opens up functions in our brain. The higher functioning in our brain is not accessible. When we're in one of those alarm fireplaces, when our nervous system is rubbed up, we literally cannot think straight or I don't even know if straight, but we can't access Mm -hmm. those more creative solutions. We can't access that ability to really navigate and problem solve with clarity and efficiency and creativity because we're in survival mode. And I think so many of us are constantly or frequently in that place of survival mode and maybe don't even know it because it's hard to know until we have it contrasted with another way so some of the work that we've done together is to experience a different way in our body and when we get that even if it's just for a bloop a little moment in time now we have something to compare to and to kind of anchor us back to to help us get there again yeah, yeah.
0: I remember that. I was like, oh, I want some more of that. What was that? Oh, I felt so relaxed. Yeah. I was uh so the ultimate case of living in the red zone. And um, I think it's what our society accepts, you know. We had to be high ballers, we had to work all the time, we had to have children in two properties and this and that. And I just drank the Kool-Aid, you know, and lived like everyone else was and like i thought i had to until it was going to kill me essentially um until i was burnt out and had breast cancer carmen was the largest single uniting factor in the thread that kept me alive wanting to be alive and then beyond wanting to be alive wanting to thrive and saying this isn't enough I look out my window and see all the craziness and i was going through chemotherapy and. <laughs> Covid lockdowns at the same time and out of town for radiation treatment while in lockdown in the hospital was just crazy times and that's when I found out I have a superpower which is that I can find joy in a shitstorm (laughs) (laughs) that is largely due to Carmen Theobald and now I will finally hand over the reins to say like how did you turn into this person where did you come from to get this dream and get here and maybe tell the world a little bit about your dream
1: thanks Paige and I also before I jump in there just want to really acknowledge how much you've come through how much you've been through a lot. yeah no kidding yeah and I think for a lot of people especially in the world right now that we're in so many of us are going through a lot on top of any other pieces of our history that are difficult
0: If this is resonating with you, and you've ever felt a little lost as you navigate conflicting data from horse pros across the disciplines, all claiming to have their own methods or recipes for making magic with horses, and you want the clarity and confidence to make sense of it all, I have a roadmap for you. Check out our Foundation course. Consider it HorseCraft 101, From Amateur to Magician, Making Magic with Horses a unique group coaching program with live online support that helps adult amateurs from non-horsey families who are seeking understanding and connection become the best stewards for their horses in nine weeks without conflicting data, lack of knowledge, or not knowing where to go to for help. So they understand how and why horses think and react the way they do to create a relaxed and confident relationship. If you're still on the fence, we have a freebie for you. If you're ready, so are we. You can get started at the magicofhorsecraft.com Until then, take a chance and remember, anything is possible.
1: So I'm really happy to share a bit of my story, um, but I also want to offer a little bit of a trigger warning because sometimes the hardest things in life are catapults or catalysts for growth. Um, and that's definitely part of my story. So What I'm going to share is perhaps a little bit challenging to hear, and there's lots of parts, I think, to all of our stories that could probably relate to this. So, um, you know, whether we're talking about trauma in one form or another, we our body responds to it in very similar ways. Um, but it also offers us an opportunity to learn from those experiences, not at all because they're our fault, not at all because I ever want anyone to experience hard things like this or like whatever you might've experienced in your own traumatic history. However, when they do happen, they offer us opportunities to heal from them. And in that healing process, we can develop a lot of awareness, a lot of, gifts that we may not have had the same kind of access to had we not been through are really hard things so it's not to say someone who hasn't been through really tough trauma can't develop amazing skills and gifts absolutely they can but it also means that those of us who've experienced really hard things we can too and we can see sometimes a little bit more clearly in the dark figuratively <laughs> um, when we're coming from that place of, of understanding it deeply. So, you know, there's lots I could share, but I think one of the pieces that, uh, you know, the thing that I was kind of alluding to that I wanted to give a bit of, a um, you know, activation or trigger warning there is that when I was in Montreal, I grew up in Montreal and I was very studious. I was always very kind of nerdy. (laughs) Um, I love learning. I've always loved learning. And I thought that my path in life was going to be pretty, well, I had a few ideas of where that was going to lead me, but I always saw a degree in there. For a long time, I actually wanted to be veterinarian. But then I had this moment of total panic, honestly, um, in my last days or years year of high school, where I saw and felt the next 10 years of my life in school. And I had a total anxiety or panic attack, and I couldn't. And I went from you know, the high level classes of science and math and this and that, and switched out into drama and Spanish <laughs> um, because I just, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. But I, I think that that was actually the beginning of my body telling me that um, school wasn't the best place for me and what I needed in my life at that time. But I was so very locked in and focused in that the only way to move forward the next steps in my world and my life was to get a degree. Fair enough, I, I value education. This is not to say anyone shouldn't get a degree. It's great if that's what you need and want. But I think I was going through the motions of it because it felt like the only choice I had, even though it wasn't fully aligned with who I was at the time. So I was in college, I was actually studying social services, loving it, especially the the work in the field. I was able to have some wonderful internships or stages and um, that was great. And while I was studying, there was a school shooting. At the college that I was attending at Dawson College in Montreal and it was a really difficult experience for everyone who was there especially those who were physically injured Um, one woman died it was uh, really awful I spent 45 minutes hiding in the dark with the rest of my class in the classroom in a situation where It was just one of those flukes where it was a six-hour class. It was a crazy long class. And it was always three hours, one-hour break, three hours. And this class and the person teaching it were so very strict about timing. Like lunch never happened at 12.01. It always happened at 12 or whatever the timing was of the day, but exactly the time. But that day we were to have presentations and the timing didn't quite line up. So we could either have lunch 10 minutes early or 20 minutes late. And the whole class voted 20 minutes late. And had we voted on 10 minutes early, I would have been exactly in the place where this person came and started shooting. So I felt like that was a miraculous event that allowed me to stay a lot safer than what would have been possible otherwise. And I was also incredibly grateful for all the first responders and the people involved that got me and the rest of my class out of there safely when it was happening very nearby and we can hear all the stuff happening. So I'm sharing some details of that just to kind of give a little bit of a picture about what that was like because it had such a big influence on my life. I didn't know it at the time, but looking back, I can see very clearly how that event brought into focus the fragility of life, of how close to death we are. And not just not saying that in a way where I'm like anxious about it, but just more deeply aware that life can be a lot shorter than we might think and even though I knew it in my head it wasn't like news <laughs> but I learned it at a deeper level in my body that day and I ended up making decisions later on that school year to not finish my program to agree to go traveling across Canada with my friend at the time who's now my husband to I agreed to do all these things that I would not have had the courage to say yes to, or even be open to, had I not had something to kind of wake me up and shake me up to say, Life is short. You should live it the way that you think is right for you. Not about what other people are thinking for you, not about what society expects of you, but really take a moment to sink down deeply into your own being. This is me talking to myself and listen. To what is happening inside and get your answers from there instead. And so that's been the huge, huge, huge guiding force for me ever since, in a huge way. So I think it gave me a lot of that courage to move through all the different opportunities that came my way and translates into what I do now with horses, because again, it's given me more of that muscle strength to listen to my internal wisdom, to listen to my body. And sometimes that means recognizing when I'm too tired or feeling hypervigilant or things are not going well. It's not always like peachy and wonderful, but it's allowing me to get real about what's going on for myself and make decisions accordingly with courage because Mm. life is short and I'm always doing my best to live it in the most alignment that I can with myself. So after that experience, I went up traveling across Canada a little bit. Well, I thought I was going to. Um, Aquila, my husband, he's our wonderful chef who caters all of our workshops and stuff here. him and I, we thought we were going to go traveling across Canada, WOOFing, which is this program to volunteer in exchange for room and board. So we left Montreal. We got out of the concrete jungle. We really wanted to be connecting more to nature. I have some family out in BC. We thought we were going to go and make it to see them by traveling from farm to farm. Went to this first farm for two weeks near Rosso, which is kind of near Huntsville or near kind of between Huntsville and Parry Sound in Ontario. we're gonna be there two weeks we stayed almost two years (laughs) (laughs) and it was from that experience that I got my apprenticeship as a farrier with Rod and we became business partners a couple years later Um, Aquila got his uh, in in the kitchen industry through that worked up the ranks and went to culinary school and you know did all of that Um, and so we both found our respective careers or at least beginnings of through that kind of experience and it was through the horse work that I found I think a lot of the tools and healing that I needed for myself whether I could put that into words or consciously think about it at the time or not but that's absolutely what the horses were drawing me into from day one on that farm. There were 24 horses on that farm. And I remember the first day I didn't have any real horse experience. I came from Montreal. I left Montreal when I was 19. And uh and I remember standing in the barn and all the horses were chewing. And it was like something changed in the cells of my being, like, <laughs> like their chewing shifted something in me. And I just knew that I had to spend as many moments with them as I possibly could. So it was a really difficult journey of learning with them. A lot of uh, school of hard knocks, a lot of trial by fire. Um, by the time I got my farrier apprenticeship, I had been through the ringer with those 24 horses. A lot of them were really young and not very well handled and all kinds of stuff. So they were actually the perfect prep for my, my life as a farrier. <laughs> and my mm. life as a farrier, working with all these different horses in different barns and different settings. You know, each one is teaching me something. Each horse is offering me a gift of my own healing, of my own learning, a mirror for myself. And I think, you know, to go back to that that experience at Dawson, that school shooting. Again, this these are all examples of ways that has allowed me to stay courageous and open to that moment. You know, courageously open to being open to traveling to. Accepting this apprenticeship in this career that I didn't even know existed before I got to the farm, um, to being open and courageous, to listening to the messages from the horses, to listening to what they had to teach me and show me, even when they what they were reflecting was really, really hard. So I've had so many amazing teachers along my path in that way, with a lot of that determined courage to be open to them. And I think that's been a really, really big piece for for my learning in all ways, whether it's with people, whether it's with horses. And that, of course, led me to learning about things that were maybe not quite in the the norms of the horse world, because I wanted to um, really expand that kind of learning. And I was like, I didn't really have the ability to articulate it, but I really felt it super strongly. And that's what led me to Linda's work, Linda Kohanov. So I read all of her books and it felt like what she was writing on the page was what I was experiencing inside. And it was like, finally, someone was expressing it properly with their words. And, um, and that, in a winding path of its own, allowed me to have the opportunity to go and learn with her in Arizona. So I mm. spent... Um, I thought it was going to be a one-time trip. I often get my my estimates of those timelines really wrong. I ended up going down there <laughs> um, like eight, nine times total. I can't remember, but for these extended learning intensives, so that I could become um, an advanced opponent quest instructor and certified in all the different things that she shares and teaches, um, so that I can do what I do now. Because that was my, you know, it's such a huge passion for me to be able to translate all of these things that I've been so deeply experiencing in my own world and how do I help create that bridge for others to have their own healthy, supported, protected journeys of learning with these amazing beings who are the horses and who are absolutely the best teachers I've ever come across.
0: Beautiful. Thank you. Also pivotal at the training Carmen and I attended in Montana was understanding the nervous system's response to perceived threats with a state of fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. Freeze and fawn are nervous system states of last resort after the options of fight or flight have been exhausted. At a certain point, our nervous system understands that safety is best sought through submissiveness and our bodies shut down. Leading to a state of dissociation that can look like calm compliance. Let me just say categorically that it's not, and that it's the same for both horses and humans. Understanding that freed me from shame, for instance, in my own life, and helped me to understand the sick feeling I had in my gut when I witnessed horse training methods touted as nonviolent that used what I now recognize as flooding techniques. I know what a horse goes through when it's given no other option but to give up. I asked Carmen the difference between a horse that was shut down or flooded and one that's in a state of relaxed compliance. As you'll hear, it's tricky and needs more unpacking. It's something I'll continue to revisit until I understand it better, but I think it should be in our consciousness, whether we work with horses or humans. Here's what Carmen had to say.
1: You know, I think it's really hard when we don't have a lot of healthy examples to compare it to. Um, but I I guess I could say from my own, like you know, experience as a farrier as well as in this world with horses in this kind of way of equine facilitated learning. When you have a horse that's really soft and willing as a partner, they still have like a spark in their eye. They're still engaging in a conversation with you. It's not just a hands down compliance. It's an agreement to partner with you, and there's hopefully some joy there too, versus kind of the shut down or frozen response where where we actually term you might have heard is flooding, where we've emotionally flooded them, and this can happen to people just as it can can to horses or any other mammal, where There's too much stimuli. It feels so unsafe that the safest thing our body can do in that moment is to shut down. And so I think a lot of times people misconstrue the shut down horse or the flooded horse with a well-behaved, well-trained horse. And there's a big difference. So that's a tough one. Um, Mm. And I think a lot of, and I I just want to say too, for anyone who's seen that or even, created that in a horse I understand how that can happen and mm-hmm. I don't think it's you know I don't want to be sharing it this as a judgment to the people mm-hmm. who have, might have done things a certain way and who are now looking to grow into something different and healthier and better because I think it's really easy for us to get sucked into a shame response when we look at things we've done, whether it's with people or horses or whatever, where now that we've learned something new, I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that. But we're so often exposed to very unhealthy ways of doing things. And we don't necessarily have an alternative. We don't even know that an alternative is necessary. So we can only work with what we know. We can only work within the information that's given and with the examples that we have. And I think many people don't have the best examples. So before anyone is quick to get harsh with themselves, I just want to really encourage everyone, including myself, because I had to have some of these moments too, of being okay with recognizing things that we've done in the past that we regret or that we don't like, and knowing that there's a way to move forward. And it's okay to be kind of fumbling in the dark a little bit as we're figuring that out. I don't want to go too much more into the specifics about shutdown versus really soft because it's so dependent on that horse (laughs) and really unique to that being. Um, And I don't want to give too much information that's going to be misconstrued. But I will say that the belief that it's safer to have a horse that's just super compliant and shut down is a really dangerous false narrative because as a farrier, I can tell you that those horses are more likely to hurt me or others than the horse that's still got their spirit. Because the one that shut down, you have this false sense of trust. And then something happens that kind of wakes them out of their stupor. And now they're going to have a huge reaction that's way beyond what anyone would have ever given them credit for. Because we think that they're going to be staying in this kind of shut down, dulled out mode also I just think it's really unethical right we don't actually want our partners these beings these living emotionally intelligent beautiful sentient beings to be a partner in quotes where they have no voice where they have no ability to really connect they're just expected to be kind of like a machine or a tool so I think we can disagree with their horses. I think we can get into like some conflict with them and work it through and it's okay. You know, it's not that I think they should be running or running a show. And there's a way we can do it where there's mutual respect. There's a way we can do it where we're really engaging a cooperative approach, a collaborative approach with them, where they actually want to do the work. And you've seen this page, like when we're working with our horses here for the workshops or anything, really. Um, they're like, they're lined up at the gate. Like they are so happy to do it. <laughs> yep. And they're also like really me, respectful. Like yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're not lining up so they can like bully the people they're lining up saying, this is, this work makes me feel good. Right. So are we doing mm-hmm. things with our horses and, and the people in our life that helps them feel good, feel seen, feel empowered. And we're going to have much more trustworthy, reliable relationships people or horses or dogs or cats or whoever, when we come to that relationship from this place of mutual respect and becoming more and more trauma-informed. So Mm -hmm. we talked a little bit about having a trauma-informed approach, how that's so helpful and important as people. It's also really important as we interact with horses because horses on the vast majority have had some pretty significant trauma. So when we deal with some of the responses that they're giving us in the moment, They are coming from this place of trauma. They are coming from experiences that they felt they needed to respond in a certain way to find a sense of safety. So this is not a horse that's learning. This is a horse that's reacting and trying to feel safe. So how do we move away from those, help them heal those traumatic responses, and help them to actually engage in this capacity to learn? And so this comes kind of full circle to your first question about the importance of working with horses, you know, without ties and this and that more at liberty, um, because we are going to get their honest responses, we're going to get their real reactions, a lot more anyway, especially uh, over time, Um, maybe if we're working with a highly traumatized horse at the beginning, there's a lot to do still before we can um, have super honest reactions from them, even so, because they might still be really frozen even with any mm-hmm. with all the ropes and stuff taken off. Um, but all that to say, I think we just have a lot more realness in the relationship when we don't have confining tools putting pressure on them to do certain things. Mm-hmm. Please note for anyone listening, I'm not saying that I disagree with riding or anything like that. I, I love to ride. Um, I think anything we're doing can be done in a healthy way or an unhealthy way. So how are we bridling our horse? Are we forcing them into it or are they partnering to accept that tool? How are we riding with those kinds of tools? Are we riding as a communication device? or Are we riding with that bridle as a restrictive and punitive device, right? So there's all different ways of using the tools that we have it's not to say that lead ropes or saddles or bridles or any of those things are necessarily bad. Um, but what are the hands doing that are holding the reins?
0: Exactly. Yeah, there used to be a saying about that um, in riding. Something to, to the effect of, you know, having a monkey on the end of the reins or soft hands. Yeah. I just wanted to cover a little bit of my own evolution too. So I'm I'm not here as... Um, a critic or an expert, but as someone in the middle of an evolution and who has had to move through some shame in her journey as as I witnessed um, possibility. So one of the things we said earlier was we don't know what we don't know (laughs) until we know differently. Right. And one of the themes of my podcast is from Maya Angelou. and that's that we do the best we can until we know better, and then when we know better, do better. So my family history um, is in settling the Wild West, and my grandfather, who I never knew, um, was named Tuffy because at about five foot five, I think he was, and one hundred and forty five pounds, he was the toughest cowboy in the West, <laughs> and he was a bronc rider. And the horses got lassoed in the morning, tacked up, ridden for the day. If they got loose, they pissed off and went home (laughs) and they got turned out with the herd again. And if uh, they needed to, they just tied a leg up so they could get the tack on. And that was how they were handled. And so there was a stage of training here um, where our two-year-olds were dragged in out of the field and tied to a post. And it was haltering day and they were tied to something unbreakable. And the standardbreds all went, oh, mm, better not do that anymore. (laughs) And the quarter horse crosses that are typical for ranch work are are typically picked for their brains. And the temperament of being easy to handle, because you don't want an explosive horse while you're fencing on the side of a mountain. (laughs) So they would pull back and go, I probably shouldn't do that anymore. But this young colt that we had finally bred um, one for me to be an athlete Uh, anything that's bred to be an athlete has some fire in its blood and particularly if it's bred to be um, in the sport of three-day eventing which was designed originally as a cavalry test between wars which is amazing Um, and those horses have to be brave and never give up. We didn't think about that when we tied him to a post. And much like some people I know, my oldest son, he didn't have any give up in him. Wasn't in his blood, wasn't in his DNA to give up. And we lost him and it was terrible. And it started a shift in how my father looked at horses. And at that point I was still fairly young in, in my own view about horses. As someone who's 6'1", and I typically ran around 170 pounds while I was riding, I could just be bigger if I needed to be, right? And my horses would go, okay, you're the boss, and follow me. But smaller riders couldn't always do that. And we were taught, and still are taught to this day, um, methods of pressure and release. And it's, you know, touch and push and step away, and there's physical contact. But I've witnessed this evolution. So now as I watch um, famous liberty trainers, or if I just go to the arena to watch you teaching your four-year-old and five-year-old horses, not even teaching, playing with your four- and five-year-olds and developing a relationship that makes it look like you're a conductor playing in your ring while the two of you... (laughs) do little games and obstacle courses and stuff and enjoy each other like the difference is just staggering so I did it took me a while to figure out a couple of things to let go of the shame of you know being a bully and having it work but then to go what's next so I was in a zone for a long time with your horses where I wouldn't know what else to do so I'd freeze with your horses because if pressure isn't supposed to be physical like when I watch you you don't for the most part you don't touch them to ask them to back up you don't touch them to ask them to move forward but they do it (laughs) what can pressure and release look like if it's not we don't want to chase them around the round pen and that's pressure and if we don't want to put pressure on them physically pushing them with our hands what can pressure and release look like
1: <laughs> um, well I think I think there is an element of pressure and at least when I'm working with them but only when it's really necessary and a lot of it is through like you said play and inspiration and creating a common language between us Um, and working a lot with the kind of energy between us, the space between us. So when I am asking them to back up, for instance, I am using all different parts of my being to ask them other than just putting my hand on their chest. And not to say that that's necessarily wrong, but I just want to offer that the quality of touch is really important. And so if I want the horses to be touching me and my body, in a way that is soft, and kind, and gentle, and thoughtful, then I better be doing the same to them. And so when I ask them to back up, for example, I'm visualizing it, I'm giving them credit that they are actually catching on to some of that visualization, I am energetically allowing my body to take on the stance of being that kind of orchestral conductor if you will of saying this is where you're going to go and not as a unhealthy demand compliance but as a this is the best thing for both of us in this moment and so i am assertively asking you to do this because it's necessary for both of us and we're both going to benefit right um, because they do right when I have more space and i feel good so do they all these things are contagious um so there's a whole you know aspect internally of what's going on before I even ask them physically anything. And then when I am asking them with my hand gestures or kind of like movement in the space, that's all part of the language and the communication that we've been developing that horses pick up very quickly Um, because it's not just about training these particular horses a certain way. I use these cues with all the horses I work with as a farrier. And even if they don't all do it, they all are recognizing it as like, oh, you're asking me differently. And most of them do respond. The ones who don't, it's usually a combination or, you know, a mix of reasons, like maybe they really just don't believe I'm asking them that way because they're so used to a different approach. So I have to kind of prove it to them. (laughs) Um, But the horses that I've been working on as a farrier for an extended period, they, they all get it. This is part of the language that they're using with each other. When you look at horses in the field, they're not walking over to each other and pushing them with their nose as the only way that they interact. They'll do that occasionally. Some horses that are especially bullyish, well, that'll be their first go-to. But I don't think we really want to model our communication on those horses. I really want to model my communication on the horses that get the most respect and trust in the herd. One of our horses here is one that I value very much in that way um, and look up to. Her name is Grace. She's like the matriarch of our herd. And, you know, she will, she's very assertive. She's very clear. She's very much in charge. And I put that a little bit in quotes because she's not just the boss, but she is the head of the herd, the leader of the herd. But she only asks the horses to do things generally when there's a good reason. She'll have the off day where she might be a little bit pushy just because, but 98% of the time, she's got really great reasons for asking or telling the horses to move, but she doesn't do it by bulldozing into them. She'll do it by looking, sending energy, and often that's enough. Sometimes she'll put her ears back. Sometimes she'll kind of take a step toward them and that's enough. But she didn't get to that point in those relationships with the other herd members by seriously bullying the crap out of them. And now they're just afraid and running away. I see that with some horses for sure. But again, I don't want to mimic those ones. I want to mimic the ones that the horses have the most respect for. And our whole herd looks to Grace in moments of concern, in moments of joy. They follow her lead in every kind of situation. And that's because she's earned their trust and respect by stepping into that assertive quality. Only when it's really needed, but also by embodying this beautiful grounded confidence and this connective energy where she will share her food, she will share the water, she's really compassionate to the other horses. She has grooming sessions with all of them, and yet she can still be in charge when she needs to and when she wants to. So for me, that's a lot more interesting as a form of leadership than more of a bullying approach. And I know that most of us have no intention of being, quote unquote, a bully. But I think when we skip over a lot of those invisible steps, when we skip over the opportunity to ask with space, to ask with visualization, to ask with energy, and we jump right to pushing them, in their eyes, in their experience, the horse, we are being really overly assertive or bullish because they're like well you could have just asked <laughs> I would have done it <laughs> yeah. so yeah. you know it's giving them those those opportunities to actually have a conversation meeting them where they're at in that moment and I think that can be a little Thank bit challenging you. when we don't have good examples of it right and so i'm really lucky yes. that i've had some excellent examples too um i was able to attend a beautiful frederick pinel clinic in the states he's the one who kind of started cavalier um and some other just I've, I've been to so many different horse things over the years um other than linda's some trainings and this and that so i just do my best to pull all the pieces together this is why i say i'm not an expert but i put it all together and learn from it all and experiment with it all so that I'm just really aiming to have quality, kind, connected, healthy relationships with the horses, whatever we're doing.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have to say, I think that at the um, heart of any of the magicians that I see work with horses, no matter whether they ride them forwards, backwards, or sideways, or just play with them in the arena and Liberty work, um, there is always an element of joy, and if it isn't there, it isn't magic. And I think it's something that should be quantifiable. I I really am going to, I think, push the FEI to redefine some things because they're they're judging submission as a quality um, in the tests. And there were places that gave it even a factor of two, you know, like submission, submission, submission. What if we judged the joyous expression on that horse's face? It's all subjective anyway. I, I'd like to kind of push that forward. And there was also something I would like to just leave with our listeners to kind of curate and leave them to investigate more. Um, there was something that they've heard a couple of times, you know, using our energy to and projecting our energy. Or, And I want to say if this makes you kind of go and roll your eyes, that the, um, the whole thing in Montana was the science that proved it. So we have measurable energy fields, and this isn't the lesson. It took them four days to hammer it in my brain. I'm not (laughs) going to do that to them now, but you could look up what a squid magnometer is, (laughs) and they have measured human energy fields, which radiate out around us, and which have measurable, quantifiable patterns dependent on the emotion we're feeling. So the patterns and the wavelengths change from joy to fear to so that's how they tell what we're feeling and that's how things are contagious and it's actually provable now. And the horses have a ginormous energy field because their hearts are so darn huge and that's what's emitting the largest of their energy fields. And that's what we play with largely in Carmen's work where I support. So I would have to say in my experience from my I've had a lifetime of training with horses, I had five days of EAL training. Um, and I am so happy to be in the backseat with you in charge, <laughs> to be honest, because I felt like I was wildly under equipped for the challenges that people showed up with, even though I was just supposed to do equine assisted learning and games and such. It was not meeting their needs. and. I was doing them a disservice. So to be able to um, co-facilitate and have a couple of people present when horses bring stuff out, you know, like you just you just never know what's going to happen. And, and so I wanted to put that out there. People can kind of research, you know, are these energy fields these ladies are talking about? Oh, these whack jobs, use your energy. Ooh, <laughs> it's real. <laughs> it really is. It's measurable, it's real, damn it. I knew I should believe in it. Um, so I certainly have uh you and Linda and those guys to thank for that, that it's opened the door for me and I'm I'm hoping to open the door to others and bridge a gap when people are wondering why they can't connect with their horse like their trainer does. So there may be muggles out there saying, Good gosh, Paige, how did you bounce back from cancer and chemotherapy and radiation and all the things or they might ask you know a friend of mine like Carmen how do you make that magic between horses I think the magic that you need to be resilient and find joy in the shit storms of life or the magic you need to connect with horses are humans because a mammal's a mammal (laughs) right sentient beings a sentient being I think they're the same And I wondered if you might share with us what you think some of those ingredients are.
1: Yeah. Well, I think you really nailed it. in some of what you shared already, Um, that they they are, they are the same ingredients. And I think some of it, it's, it's hard to convey on a podcast, Um, Mm -hmm. but. A really good place to start, I think is through our breath. So. You know, and whether we're, we're really believing in all the energy stuff or if someone tells you to breathe and that totally pisses you off, fair enough. <laughs> um, so before I go any further, I get that too. But the proof is in the pudding. You know, It's really cool that we're living in, this, in a time where science is kind of catching up to a lot of the quote woo-woo things or whatnot. But what's neat is that when you see people who are working with horses in a way that looks kind of magical... Well, that is the proof that these things are real, right? It's not just a one-off fluke, um, especially, and I can say that, you know, it's not just, and I, no, again, I don't consider myself this incredible horse person, um, but I know that I can, I'm always learning and I'm able to witness the change, the transformation in others. So it's something that we can actually learn to teach, you know, to say that they just don't have feel, right? That kind of a horse term, they just don't mm-hmm. have a feel that doesn't have to be well, then they're screwed, right? Like that's not, that doesn't have to be it. And and I think we can really catapult our learning. It doesn't have to take 10 years of riding like crap to then finally start to develop feel. We can start to integrate these tools and these skills from day one. So whether we're stuck or we're just getting started or whether we're looking to have that like next level um, amazing experience when we're already incredible riders, these tools are helpful. And they are the through line. They are the commonality, whether we're looking to improve human relationships or horse relationships. So I say breath as as the thing to start because that is our most direct communication possible with our nervous system. Talking about all these things about our bodies. How do we get our body to feel okay? How do we get our body to believe that this moment is okay and get access to that more creative solution-oriented thinking? Let's start our breathing. So, you know, one example of that could be taking a really deep, long breath in and really extending the out breath. So as we breathe in, we can let our shoulders be soft and low, letting our bellies expand as we draw the air in. And then as we breathe out to really let that out breath be as long as we can comfortably, maybe even putting some pressure behind it think of it like breathing out through a straw or on the seeds of a dandelion. But that out-breath that becomes, if we can kind of aim for twice as long as the in-breath. So as an example, like five in. And 10 out. And let that out-breath have some pressure. We are communicating directly with our nervous system. And there's so many tools, I think it could be a 1000 podcasts worth of tools. Um, But if there was one to start with, that would be the one I would choose.
0: Yeah, and that's the one that made me realize what I had been doing by accident on traumatized horses. I used to partly roll the tongue back in my mouth. And I would fall into a breathing rhythm that was very purposeful. And I would blow out like I was a leaky tire or that blowing into a milkshake with a straw so there's some resistance and then I had a song with each horse had a song and it just went around and around and and these horses would go into a trance for me and they were formally unrideable I was like I don't know just go for me so I think if I can do it by accident I can teach it by purpose and that's going to be my next mission right now we're just provoking thought with our podcast and playing the possibilities are endless anything is possible. Now, Carmen, you said something that I've heard you say repeatedly, you, you are a learner and not an expert. And, um, you know, most of our crowd of um, horse people won't have heard of you because you say you're not an expert horse person. But I do know the world's elitist, most expert horsemen um, from every kind of different discipline. And fuck, you're a standout number one so you belong there and um I'm gonna go around now and and talk to them all a little bit about the magic and capture some stories of when they've had it or haven't and and talk about what is possible because I've I've witnessed it and uh I think at the heart of it is like you said the inroad is that breath it was what I was doing by accident I witnessed people working with horses that just seemed to follow their thoughts. And I had one teacher say this to me, a very famous teacher, a big name. Sadly, she has passed her way. Her name was Pat Burgess and she taught Lucinda Green or Lucinda Pryor Palmer Green, most of what she knew (laughs) and a lot of other medal winners too from Great Britain. And at a clinic when she was 80 or 82 years old, I was so lucky to attend. Um, She told us to just picture what we wanted and to send the horse a picture. And she said, like only someone of her age with only so many years left can. She said, it's how horses think. Just accept it. They think in pictures. They can see the pictures you send them. And don't ask me how. And then she moved on. (laughs) I didn't have time for us to be us. And I my eyes were like, What? did she just say yeah um yeah so if you're struggling out there to get the magic with your horse or if you're struggling to bounce back from a good old-fashioned life shit kicking I am here just to prove what's possible um it gets easier Carmen told me it would she told me I'd build up my vulnerability muscles and um I'm just sort of living proof of a lot of how not to? How not to live your life? I've got lots of stories to tell with my peers that'll follow up on this. But this is the thread and the the place I want to sit. Like the marrow of life is is at this intersection. I think of connection, because you just can't have courage without safety and connection with others. And we don't do any of this alone. There's not a one of us and any of these people that are this huge pedestal sitters I mean we put them way up there on their pedestals whether it's uh, William Micklem or Denny Emerson or Odette Shimoni or Vaughn Jeffries Leslie and Leslie Grant Law they're all up there on those pedestals we're gonna just talk about what's real and what makes us all the same I really look forward to it and I thank you for kicking us off and for giving me this time Carmen we had a little history of technical glitches and Carmen has been very generous I want to recognize that today
1: oh it's such a pleasure Um, Paige I I look and I look forward to listening to your other interviews very much
0: thank you and can I just give us a plug because Carmen and I have plans Carmen, can you
1: tell them what you planned on May 28th (laughs) absolutely yeah uh so if this podcast sounds interesting as far as maybe some different approaches to working with horses. Um, I mean, a lot of the work we do and the workshops that we offer um, is not necessarily geared specifically for horse people. I think think a lot of it is very applicable and I've had lots of horse people come through and gain a ton. Um, But Paige and I really wanted to create something that was specific to horse people, where people can come and have those really horse-centered discussions and experiences to start to explore what we call the music of horsemanship so that workshop is called the music of horsemanship and we're going to be putting a lot of the tools that we talked about in this podcast and more into practice with the horses to really see with our herd here at Horsense North some of that magic and Mm -hmm. helping ourselves reconnect to it or access it for the first time and have a little bit of a or a big, who knows, transformation in not only the way we are interacting with them, but the way we interact with ourselves in those moments too, because that is the starting point and the key. So um, yeah, I I hope to see some of you there. And I hope that this podcast can be a helpful tool on its own as well. Yeah. Thank you, Carmen. Hey,
0: you're still here. Thanks so much for listening. What you think and feel matters. If this resonated with you, please like and share. It truly makes a difference. I encourage you to engage with the content on my Substack account and my socials, all at The Magic of Horsecraft, where you can join the discussion and shape the future shows. Tell me what you want to hear more of, or less of, and we'll evolve together as we grow a community of like-minded souls here for the good of the horse. If you're an adult amateur horse lover looking for confidence and clarity in your role of equine steward, check out my course, From Amateur to Magician, Making Magic with Horses, at themagicofhorsecraft.com. Until then, I'm here to remind you of a couple things. One, underneath it all, we all want the same things. To be heard, understood, and accepted for who we are. And two, anything is possible. Take a chance!